Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In today's episode, I'm joined by Thomas Klokanis, Principal at White Star Capital. Thomas, it's great to have you on. Thanks, Josh. It's good to be here. So we like to start by asking all of our guests uh, what their life was like before the crypto rabbit hole. So, so what did you do before kind of stumbling upon crypto? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess my background is fairly kind of typical of a lot of folks in crypto. Um, I've always been interested personally in the overlap between tech and finance. Um, and initially, that led me to start my career in investment banking, um, primarily in mergers and acquisitions at Nomura, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch in London, as well as Credit Agrico in New York. Focusing on the tech, media, and telecom sectors at the time, um, about a year into that, kind of realized that I was a little bit more interested in um, being on a smaller team where I could have more impact and pivot into equity research uh, and joined Barclays in London. And I started out covering fintech and payments um, and later European banks. And long story short, um, that was a pretty integral part of my journey into crypto. I was already kind of interested in the space. And in 2014, when I joined Barclays, some of our clients actually started asking us what Bitcoin was. So that opened up a whole can of worms, as I'm sure you can imagine. So I assume that was your... F- well, so was that your first experience with crypto when, when clients started asking you about Barclays? Or you know, were you aware before? And when did you really start to fall down the rabbit hole? And, and, and why did you eventually decide to go into the space full time? Yeah. So I was a little bit curious about that kind of prior to that institutional client interest. I'd say in 2013, Bitcoin started to appear on my radar and some of the publications I read pretty regularly. Um, but I really didn't kind of do a full deep dive down the rabbit hole until 2014 when our clients at Barclays started asking us, you know, what is this Bitcoin thing? What did it mean for their stocks? Is it a threat? Is it an opportunity? Can we quantify it? And what can kind of the tech be used for So in 2014, that summer, we actually wrote one of the first institutional reports um, on the space as part of a broader theme under the future of payments. And that's what really kind of, um, you know, launched me down the rabbit hole. I probably first purchased crypto um, a couple weeks shortly thereafter. And, you know, fast forward a couple years, rapidly became convinced that the tech had potential beyond payments um, and decided to go full time. Uh, did my MBA at Columbia Business School um, kind of to facilitate that, that transition into, you know, from banking into startup world. Um, but also from London, where I was play, I was uh, living and working, um, back to the U.S., where the ecosystem was a little bit more mature at the time. This was 2017, um, kind of late 2016. And so the the first uh, job you took at at crypto was at Consensus. So why why did you decide to join Consensus? And you know what was Consensus doing at the time? And and what kind of work were you doing there? Yeah, that's a great question. It feels like it was years ago now, um, and, although it's you know only two or three. Um, so I joined Consensus in summer 2017. Uh, actually, at the time, I was still doing my MBA, kind of spending time on both sides. And it was really the, de- the decision to go to Consensus was influenced by a couple of things. I think if you go back to crypto summer 2017, there was definitely a lot of developer interest, but you were kind of just starting to see that mainstream business spoke interest. And so there were only a few companies for someone with my profile, you know, coming from banking, doing an MBA, where I could really add value. Um, and so Consensus and other folks like Coinbase and Coindesk kind of came up on my radar. Um, I initially joined, like I said, summer 2017. The company at the time was about 120 people. And I worked with Joe Lubin and the management on a variety of strategic initiatives, which effectively range from, you know, geographical and international expansion uh, for Consensus, helping, you know, uh, things like the Washington DC office get off the ground, um, portfolio support for the projects we had incubated under Consensus Labs, which at the time primarily had solo tech founders and often no kind of business co-founder, um, and on a variety of issues such as fun- funding and more. Over time, I ended up doing something that's pretty consensus and that I'm sure you've met other folks in the space um, who've done similar things, which is I ended up joining one of these projects that Consensus Labs incubated as one of their first employees. That project was uh, then called Meridio, and it's now part of Consensus Codify. And it was focused on security tokens um, and backend fund administration. So all in all, you know, in two years of Consensus, um, it was an incredible journey. Saw Consensus go from about 120 to 1,000 people 
some radio go from you know three four people to fifteen. Executed one of the first security token transactions on mainnet with Cushman Wakefield and Cayuga Capital, and uh, yeah, that was kind of the first uh, first two years in crypto and a rapid learning experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was an exciting and absolutely insane time to join Consensus because I mean, Consensus grew so fast. Uh, and this was as Ethereum ran up to what, whatever, fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars, whatever ridiculous high it hit, or you know, and and I'm sure that was just a crazy time to be at the organization. But something you mentioned, you know, stuck out to me was the fact that you were working on security tokens back in 2017. Security tokens are really not something that we've seen take off yet. And, and my opinion on on why it hasn't taken off is just because of a lack of liquidity um, behind trading of security tokens. Um, but but I mean I, I I'm wondering your thoughts on on why we haven't seen security tokens take off the way that other other you know parts of this industry have taken off these last few years. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and to be transparent, you know I do think 2017 was pretty early to market to be thinking about security tokens. Although I continue to think that it is to some extent inevitable um, in that it provides regulators a better audit trail and better kind of um, real life real time compliance functionality than they've ever had. And also coupled with the fact that, you know, clearing settlement infrastructure for traditional markets hasn't really had an upgrade in more than decades. If I think about, you know, the things that are necessary for security tokens as a whole to kind of take off as a use case, it takes a couple of different things. And notably, it takes broad kind of institutional participation, right? If you think about the bulk of the deal flow out there or the volume of financial instruments, it's, it's primarily institutions that are leading that, not retail. So, you know, for institutions to understand the uh, asset class, to understand the tech, to have institutional trading products and trading desks, to have trading venues, to your point about liquidity, to have institutional grade custody, to have some you know sufficient data disclosures, a good regulatory regime, and also from a kind of tech perspective, uh, sufficient scalability for the systems are all kind of prerequisite conditions. If I think about where we are in, in kind of the adoption of security tokens today, I'd say we're we're moving towards what I would have liked to see in 2017, which is kind of these early adopters that are credible institutions with quality deal flow, not you know some of the adverse selection we may have seen in the early days coming into this market. And I think the reason for that comes from a couple of different points. I think you know the tech um, and blockchains in general um, are much better understood today by some of these folks, whether it's regulators, institutions, or corporates than ever. Um, I think they've seen a couple of pilot projects done by folks like Meridio and others in the industry that have given them some comfort. They've seen some big name investors get behind some of these projects. And also, we're starting to see a breadth of different instruments, not just private um, equity, which is what kind of a lot of initial projects of which Meridio were focusing on with real estate being issued. So if I look at what some of the big banks in Europe, like Societe Generale or Santander are doing with bonds, um, that's definitely very, very interesting. Equally here in the US, we've seen a lot, lot of interesting real estate deals kind of going the token route. So that's all pretty encouraging. But the last thing I would add to that is, to your point, you know, a lot of the value proposition for security tokens was probably initially too focused on liquidity and making things that are liquid today, even if they're moved and digitized onto a blockchain, isn't going to happen overnight. And so what is kind of the 10x improvement that we can provide in the interim to kind of attract some quality assets to be digitized? And that was part of the initial vision at Meridio. And it's actually, you know, I think I introduced the project as having an element of backend fund administration. Digitizing a security and making it tradable 24-7 while remaining compliant is interesting. But for example, going back to the real estate example, that's not going to be liquid overnight. What does add some, some value for sponsors today is things like cap table management, automatic dividend distribution, to the extent that you can, automating accounting, right? Especially in an asset class like real estate, where oftentimes leasing data is 120 days old. And so kind of to that aim, our initial vision at the time was to work with folks like Balance, another consensus project focused on leveraging on-chain data for real-time accounting, but also bringing cash flows into a property on-chain. We rolled out a leasing product for that. And that was part of the broader vision. So I guess kind of consolidating all of that, it's been slow to develop. There are you know, very reasonable reasons for that. Liquidity is one of them. And the fact that liquidity isn't going to happen overnight and is not a sufficient reason to migrate over to these systems is one. But we're starting to see um, adoption creep up and kind of solutions mature. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, you see all of these security token issuers that are going out and preaching all this liquidity. And then they're, you know, 
projects are paying to get listed on these security token exchanges, and then there's no trading volume all of a sudden. So I think your point on needing to sell a lot of some of the other parts of the value uh, you know, proposition here, you know, with cap table table management and other things, you know, certainly makes sense. And I think one of the biggest barriers as well is just the fact that it's expensive to tokenize, mm-hmm. um, right? And it's complicated, and it's just not the easiest thing. And I think that that's probably something that that changes over time. But I guess it's it's an interesting, you know, thing to watch develop because I don't think it's going away. To your point, right? I think if anything, it, it it's 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 you know maybe still too early, but I think it makes sense that, you know, at, at some point, you know, everything needs to be digitized, right? Uh, and we're seeing that now with, you know, at first people laughed at Bitcoin and now every central bank is launching their own digital currency, right? And, you know, we're kind of moving into a digital world. So I certainly think it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely echo that. Um, and maybe the last thing I'll say there also is, I think it's extremely important to have, um, you know, test projects across different types of assets, right? Back to the point I was making and the point you were making, I think it's extremely hard to make something like real estate where the investment thesis is liquid um, overnight. However, once you get critical mass, maybe you can bring liquidity through indices. However, in the shorter term, there is value in, in even tokenizing and digitizing you know, short-term debt instruments where you have some, some payout functionality and things like that that can be automated. So I think it's about also starting with the right issuers and the right assets. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so after consensus... Uh, you decided to join uh, White Star Capital. So, what was your reason for for joining Consensus and and you know moving to White Star and and, and what is White Star? Yeah, um, great question, and happy to kind of give a, a brief overview there. So, personally, I had always been fairly interested by the VC world. Back to what I said about kind of that overlap between tech and finance. You know, I think the the kind of career path into VC is one that really differs for many people, but um, it was always in the back of my mind. I guess is what I'll say as, as kind of point one. When I was a consensus worker on Meridio, I think we realized that the strategy we were taking with Meridio might be a little bit early to market. And so kind of the, the pivot for the product to be part of something broader within Consensus Codify, more of a white label version than you know a standalone company, made a lot of sense. And they've gotten some good traction with that since. Um, personally, though, I was kind of still more interested in, in kind of company building and startups. And so I started you know doing a little bit of soul searching. Also, um, to the point you made earlier, two years of consensus was a great learning experience and definitely feel like, um, you know, in terms of acceleration, it felt like more than two years. Um, so I did a couple of things before finding White Star. You know, I did some consulting for CoinHouse, which is a spin out of Ledger, the custody, um, the, the kind of hardware wallets and custody solution in France, helping them on their B2B strategy. Um, I worked a little bit with Blockstack here in New York on the launch of their smart contract language, Clarity, and just started speaking to a number of investors in the space that I knew had some interest in this space. And I really segmented them three. You know, I think if you look at the types of funds that invest in crypto today, you've got kind of the crypto native funds, folks like Consensus, Multicoin, um, so on and so forth. You've got uh, kind of corporate VCs, uh, notably in the banking world. And you've got more generalist VCs that have either dedicated, you know, a pocket of their main fund to kind of do some crypto or launch a dedicated fund. And I was kind of interested in, in learning the venture job the way it's, it's been done you know, historically, I think there is some merit to that. And I've always been fairly curious. So in that respect, that third category in which White Star falls was was most appealing to me. White Star today is a six-year-old venture firm. So founded in 2014 out of Canada, which differs from a lot of our peers in a couple of different ways. So I think first we started with a global outlook. Um, so offices uh, in Montreal, New York, and London. And we've since extended that geographical reach with a full fully staffed office in Paris, as well as a satellite presence in Tokyo, Hong Kong, uh, Toronto, and San Francisco through our venture partners. And so that, that was one thing where, you know, generally speaking, as someone who's kind of lived internationally, that was appealing, but also I felt for crypto was a very good fit in that this sector is pretty global by nature and has embraced things like remote teams, you know, ahead of the pandemic um, and ahead of, you know, this shift that we're seeing today. The first fund that White Star had raised was a $70 million seed fund. The second fund was a $180 million Series A fund. And where the firm was in its life cycle when I met them was graduating towards Fund 3, but also graduating towards a dedicated crypto strategy. So today we are raising and have actually reached a first close on two new funds, a $300 million Fund 3, which will focus primarily on Series A and B opportunities in general tech, and a $30 million um, blockchain-focused fund, which will focus primarily on tokens, seed rounds, and series A's. Um, Historically, White Star has primarily invested in things like fintech, companies like Barwell that you might know there, things like mobility. We just announced um, a big follow-on round led by SoftBank and our company Tier today. 
things like food tech. We were big investors in Freshly, which recently sold to Nestle, but very little crypto. And part of the reason for that was as a general investor, and, and I saw this pretty, you know, firsthandedly at Consensus when I joined in 2017, and we were one of the few, few players funding this space. 2017, it was kind of hard for generalists to wrap their minds around the sector, you know, tokens versus equity, valuations were a little bit frothy, um, the quality of the deal flow wasn't great. But also, as a generalist investor, there were a couple of contingencies that we like to see before we invest, such as, you know, regulatory clarity, some signs of early big venture backed exits. And all of those conditions have really come together in the past, I would say, year and a half. So that was the reason for kind of launching this, this, this crypto fund. Um, and that's what I focus on at White Star today. And so what, what is your day-to-day? Your, your job title is principal. So what does that kind of mean for, for your day-to-day and, and, and what that looks like? Yeah. So um, like in any industry, you know, the, the kind of jargon around titles um, in venture is, is specific to venture. Principal effectively just sits, well, uh, sits just below the partners. Um, and so my role really at White Star spans from, you know, thesis formation on our digital asset fund side of things fundraising across all our funds, um, sourcing and, and making investments all the way to portfolio support. I'd say there are no two days that look the same, but a, a good chunk of my job is, is spent, you know, talking to other investors, folks like yourselves that know the sector, talking to a variety of entrepreneurs and, and really drilling down into their business models um, and thinking about, you know, who we want to work with, where we can add value, and then kind of executing on that. And if I think about Relating that to where we are today, um, you know, with this fund, we've reached a first close. We're hoping to have a second close um, in a couple of weeks. Um, we have made two investments already in Defuse, which is an infrastructure play based uh, in Montreal, um, and in Multis, which is a kind of building a B two B crypto bank. Um, we had we had Tebow on the podcast actually already. So shout out, go find that episode to anybody listening. Great, yeah, he's he's great, and I, I really enjoy um, what he has to say, kind of around stable coins and and how corporates are starting to get involved in the space. But yeah, so if I relay that back to kind of where we are today, um, you know, a lot of research, a lot of talking to um, very smart folks, whether they're investors or entrepreneurs, um, and a lot of heads down time working with our portfolio companies. And so, one thing you mentioned there was was fundraising. So, one, I'm wondering what types of, you know people or, or organizations or institutions are allocating to, you know, crypto venture funds? Uh, and, and what is the what is the elevator pitch that you make to these guys? Yeah, so I think that's a broad question, which I could either answer, you know, taking our fund and its specificities as Let's a, go specific. As a Let's go specific. Okay, cool. um, yeah, so in our case, you know, I think we have a, a pretty wide LP base already across our first two funds and now our third fund. Those span from, you know, family offices, um, corporates, sovereigns um, and a couple funds of funds. And so if I look at the the size of our digital asset fund, which is 30 million, again, that is on the low range for the more institutional folks. And so in our first close, we primarily have family offices and high net worth individuals, a lot of which come from industries such as finance, media, um, gaming, and and a couple others. But increasingly, what we're seeing is despite the small size of the fund, we have a number of institutions, particularly in Europe, that are starting to look at the fund with kind of appetite. Because what you've seen in the US is a couple of forward thinking institutions, notably some endowments, have started allocating to crypto. But you have kind of yet to see that tide shift in Europe where they've been a little bit slower on adoption and perhaps on regulatory clarity. So interestingly, um, what I'm seeing and what I anticipate is that you know we'll have a number of institutionals and corporate in this fund, um, and they'll be part of the second and final close on the fund. And so what is White Star's uh, cryptocurrency investment thesis and what types of companies will, will, will you know, the, the digital asset fund specifically being in, be investing in? I mean, I, I know you mentioned both tokens and equity, but would love for you to kind of, you know, go into that a little bit more. Absolutely. So I think the investment thesis at large is one that a number of kind of specialized funds in the space all share, which is, you know, uh, blockchains and, and, and crypto, generally speaking, are kind of the next iteration of the internet, right? This this kind of web three and evolution from web two, where architecturally users can their own, uh, own their own data. And we're kind of going from, you know, read and write capability to read, write and execute capability. Um, and so what, how that translates into the fund is really a fund that's dedicated to the space, but is kind of agnostic in terms of use case and in terms of, um, you know, what blockchain ecosystems we look at. That does not mean there are not things that we're more excited about. So kind of diving in deeper, you know, up to 20% of this fund can be deployed into tokens. And that's primarily with a long-term venture investor outlook. So kind of buy and hold, not necessarily active trading. 
we wanted that flexibility because, you know, you know this as well as I do, and I'm sure most listeners do as well. Um, there are a number of, of projects in the space, in the crypto space, that can only be monetized with tokens. And so whether that's new layer one protocols that are coming to market or, you know, some kind of DeFi protocols or, or other stuff like that, such so as Compound, Uniswap, um, so on and so forth, we, we wanted to be able to have exposure to those projects. Those investments can be made, you know, either directly in token form um, or in, in things like SAFs that eventually convert or in equity that eventually converts if the company is dissolved. You know, we've seen projects like like Blockstack do this back in the day or Audius more recently. Um, so we wanted that flexibility. And within that, I'd say we're, we're kind of more actively looking at um, some DeFi protocols and, and things like that than we are new layer ones, although we're, we're still open-minded on that front. And, you know, had we been operational earlier, things like Blockstack, Solana, Avalanche could have definitely been of interest. Beyond the token the token kind of sleeve, you know, I, I'd say the first vertical of what we're looking at really is picks and, picks and shovels. Um, so within that, we bucket things like, you know, infrastructure, developer tools, um, scalability solutions, privacy solutions, new generation exchanges, um, and custody solutions. And and with a particular eye on the infrastructure bit of things, um, with kind of cross-chain infrastructure, I think looking back, we've seen a number of players kind of dedicate, um, you know, all of their blockchains of service or API um, services directly at one blockchain ecosystem. Increasingly, what we're seeing from some of the kind of enterprise and corporate LPs that we're speaking to is they're kind of very agnostic in terms of their blockchain use cases. You know, they might want to do like, say, they're a gaming company. They might want to do one game built on EOS and another built on Flow. Um, and so looking, looking at solutions in the infrastructure bucket that are, that are, you know, acknowledging a future in which there might be more than one blockchain that dominates is something we're actively interested in beyond infra and, and I'd say defuse is, is a bet kind of in the, that direction. Um, you know, we invested at the time where, um, they were only launched on EOS, but they've since launched on Ethereum and are doing some interesting work that I'll let them dispose in the next couple of weeks um, in some other ecosystems. Uh, the second category is more at the application layer. And I'd say the first kind of subcategory there is um, financial applications. And in that, we actively look at both centralized solutions, things like, you know, BlockFi or Ledin, as well as decentralized solutions, um, some of the DeFi protocols we talked about earlier, and both across kind of B2B and B2C. Um, and then within the other kind of sub bucket of the application layer, stuff that we look at is more in the Web3 arena. And, and transparently, you know, Web3 spans a pretty large universe, um, everything from identity to gaming to social networks. Currently speaking, you know, there are certain subcategories within that that are probably more investable and closer to product market fit than others. Um, you know, I think gaming, as, especially as it pertains to licensed content that can kind of attract a non-crypto native crowd, Gaming as pertains to kind of card games or fantasy sports games that that don't really need, you know, high throughput of these blockchains, social tokens and kind of, you know, iterations of, um, of media publishing platforms are things that we're actively interested in. Facebook on the blockchain or Twitter on the blockchain feels a little bit more further out. Um, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of flavor. But the, the short of it is we really are kind of agnostic and, and we're more interested in, in partnering with the best entrepreneurs in the space than anything. And so when looking at the token space, are you looking specifically at pre-launch tokens? Or are you also opening open to investing in, in liquid tokens and, you know, doing things like buying directly from foundations? Yeah, that is a great question. And not necessarily one that we've, um, you know, landed on a definitive answer on. I'd say more often than not, we are more interested in investing, um, you know, in the, in the same way that VCs traditionally do, i.e. having contact with the team. And most of the time, that probably means... Um, not buying tokens in the secondary markets, although there are scenarios in which that could happen. So I would say pre-launch and, and you know, kind of from the team's treasury are, are probably preferred. That said, there is some flexibility. And, and this is part of why we wanted a, a dedicated fund to do this. Um, a number of traditional VC funds can't invest in already liquid instruments and things like that. So we did want to preserve that flexibility. But more often than not, um, we're probably looking at, at pre-launch and kind of um, team treasury and, and stuff like that a little bit more. So something you mentioned earlier was the fact that a lot of token deals were very expensive back in the day or kind of hard to value. And and so I'm wondering, how do you actually how do you actually value a token deal, right, for a pre-launch network and say, hey, I think this is a this is a good investment. This makes sense. This valuation makes sense. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think um we could spend hours and hours talking about token valuations, but um you know, a couple of different things there. I think, first of all, whether we're investing in tokens and equity, there are a number of things that we that we look for in both categories of investment. And, you know, that's things like 
strength of the team? Do they have the right mix of skills and, and you know, networks to execute on the use case they're going after? Do they have a history of delivering? It's things like the product and the market. You know, is there demand for this product or service? Is the total addressable market for this large enough? Um, we look at things like the business model and the traction. You know, uh, are, is, it, is it feasible? Does value capture make sense? Are the unit, unit economic strong? We look at the competitive landscape. We look at you know the roadmap and, and the fundraising history as well, obviously. So those are all kind of the traditional venture metrics. Um, and that, that, that should be evaluated whether you're doing a token investment or an equity investment. But as we move into, into token investments, I think for us, there, there are a couple of different things. So for starters, you know, not every project needs a token. And thankfully, we're not in 2017 where every project has a token. And we've also seen token models evolve from kind of this idea of a utility token that's, that's just a means of payment with a specific application or within a specific platform to tokens that confer some form of governance and fee capture rights. And that's definitely something that, that can be valued and can be modeled out um, similar to kind of a DCF in the traditional world. Um, we look at things like, you know, the token distribution, um, does it, does it make sense? Um, you know, is there going to be massive inflation and dilution later on? Things like that. We look at kind of governments and incentives. And then if the token's already live and the network's already live, um, there are a number of fundamental metrics to look at as well, right? And you kind of sitting at the tide know this as well, if not better than I do, but whether it's things like, you know, trading volumes, right? Obviously important on the liquidity side. You made this point about security tokens earlier. But also things like for a lot of these, you can look at PE ratios, you can look at NVT ratios. Um, so there are a couple of fundamental metrics that are specific to crypto that we, we kind of start looking at. I'd say when investing pre-launch, um, tokens have a fairly binary return profile sometimes, or, or perhaps not all the time, but at least if you look at kind of a one to two year investment horizon, you know, it's, it's easy to imagine a scenario in which you're 80% you're, you're down in your investment, but it's also easy to imagine a scenario in which you're you know, 10 to 20x up. And so what I mean there is networks that launch in valuations that are, you know, 500 million, a billion, it, it's kind of hard to see that, that multiplier on the upside being a clear path unless there is, you know, massive adoption and massive traction. So when we're looking at pre-launch stuff, I'd say valuation on the fully diluted network value basis is something that we're kind of very, very cautious on. And, you know, the lower, the better to some extent. Hopefully that makes some sense. And I'm happy to double click into any of that. Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes sense to me. I mean, you know, I see all these networks launching and I mean, I guess less so now, but like when EOS launched and raised $4 billion, I'm like, how is anybody going to make money? Like this yep. makes no sense. And it's the same thing, but it's not just a crypto native problem. It's also like a WeWork and other large company problems, right? When you mm -hmm. go out and you raise so much capital and you raise at such a large valuation, I don't like, where's the path to 10 X? Like, you know, how does an EOS go 10 X? On the on the four billion dollars it's raised, which implied you know a uh, I don't remember whatever ridiculous valuation, right? So I think that that totally makes sense. And so you mentioned really quickly, and uh, you know, you know, we go into this in every podcast, but fundamentals and, and fundamental valuation metrics. And I know you mentioned the NVT ratio. And to anybody not listening that that's not familiar, the NVT ratio is the network value, right, which is market cap divided by the thirty day average transactional value. Uh, on a, on an individual network, so I'm wondering how you actually use the NVT ratio because I I know that you know it's it was proposed by I think Willie Wu originally and it's been around for mm -hmm. a while, but I you know I, I in practice I haven't really seen it being used all that often. So I'm wondering how you use either and maybe you don't use the NVT ratio, but how you kind of look at different valuation mechanisms in in, in crypto and and how you actually apply them in in your day to day. Yeah, so I'd say I probably use. We've not made any token investments yet, um, so I probably use that all of that more in my personal portfolio and than anything to date. You know, I think about the NVT ratio in a similar way that I think about PE ratio for traditional companies. It, it, it gives you kind of a, a not guide that PE ratios matter anymore either, though. But yeah, that's also true. The markets <laughs> today are a little bit more irrational than ever in this era of unprecedented. Uh, <laughs> central bank support um, for markets. Let's just call it that. As, as we all like to say, Burr goes the money printer. Um, but yeah, so just to go back to that, you know, I think I think about it similarly to, to how I look at PE ratios, even in today's market, which is if relative to every other comp, the ratio is, is kind of super, super high, there's either something really promising in terms of growth prospects or things are a little bit overheated. And so it's a helpful metric, but by no means is it, you know, the one thing that kind of spurs um, uh, an investment uh, or, or, or a divestment decision. What I would say, though, kind of more importantly, and taking a step back, is that increasingly, people like Willy Woo, people like Chris Berniski, um, you know, firms like Token Terminal 
are furthering the thinking on what crypto fundamentals are. And that is great in, in kind of two ways. A, I think it really helps um, you know, us as a community align on, on how we value these things and how we think about value capture. But also B, I think it's led to a meaningful um, iteration of, of token models, notably some of these token models that now confer you know, governance rights and fee capture where you can model these things out. And if I look at Token Terminal today, you know, the fact that they currently have very traditional metrics like GMV, like take rate, like PE, or like or like price to sales even, is, is very, very encouraging because it makes traditional institutions that are starting to look at this space, whether they're looking at layer two dApps or layer one blockchains, able to think about this with traditional mental models and able to value these things with some level of comfort. So, you know, more importantly, I think that's what I'm but truly I, but excited I think about. Doesn't, I mean, I, I guess that, really is just related to DeFi though, right? You know, with a lot of what Token Terminal is doing and a lot of things like, you know, uh, you know, measuring, you know, annualized gross volume and different things like that. I, I think that that's, that's kind of specific to, you know, DeFi. How, how, how do you kind of apply that to non-decentralized finance related platforms? Or is that just thing that's not, or, or applications, or is that just something you're not, not as interested in at this point? Yeah, so I'd say actually it does extend beyond DeFi. I think you can you can look at you know layer ones and kind of do something similar, right? Notably, when you look at at fees and and at fully diluted market cap and stuff like that. So I, th- I think you can do some of this work on on layer ones. It's just going to give you a very different you know average ratio, average price to uh, price to fees or or whatever it is than when you're looking at adapts. Um, so that's one. I also think if you look at you know some of what's happening in the NFT space where some of these platforms ranging all the way from, you know, super rare on the art side or still rare on kind of the fantasy sports side are have have these concepts of, you know, total GMV. What is their take rate? What are the secondary market transaction fees? And, and that all can still be modeled out. So arguably, I think a lot of us think this only applies to DeFi because that's where there's the most activity and therefore the most kind of data today. But I do anticipate as more and more use cases move on chain, we'll be able to conduct similar, uh, apply similar mental models, sorry, to, to both layer ones and other categories of, uh, of applications. And so you, you brought up a really interesting point there, right? Which is, you know, kind of, you know, the protocol versus versus application, right? And, and you know, the, the fact that valuation mechanisms are, are different. So my question is, how do you think about that, right? How do you think about investing in protocols versus applications? And, you know, in the long run, I mean, do you think that more, you know, value is going to accrue to a protocol like an Ethereum or the applications that are being built on top of it? And, and, and kind of how do you value both of those? Yeah, that is an absolutely great question. Um, and I wish I had a crystal ball to give you a definitive answer. But, you know, I think the space well, at that's large... That's why we have not- you on. We're expecting a crystal ball. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hate to disappoint, but I'm not sure I've got the crystal ball, although I do have my opinions. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, taking a step back, we've gone from kind of this fat protocols thesis that was pretty widely accepted to realizing that, you know, looking at things like Ethereum, the cumulative value of um, all the ERC-20s issued on top of it may, may be larger than the underlying network itself. I think where I kind of align is, is kind of the fatter protocols thesis, which is, you know, uh, protocols in kind of the Web2 era were not monetizable whatsoever. Protocols in the Web3 era are. Um, they will capture some value. Does that mean there's no value to be created to the app layer? I, I don't think so, right? Um, especially as we move towards tokens, token models where some of these um, layer two solutions do capture some value, do take some fees. Um, there will inevitably be value accruing to the to the two of them, even just comparing fees, not comparing, you know, market cap of the RC20s versus market cap of Ether. So, you know, I think personally the answer lies somewhere in the gradient. How do you assess both? I think, you know, for, for layer for applications and layer two protocols, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier around, you know, those traditional venture metrics plus some token specific stuff. For a layer one, you are probably more thinking about kind of the crypto network specific t- stuff, the distribution of nodes, the issuance schedules, uh, the kind of open source developer community that is around the project. So there are a couple of different projects in that when you're investing in an application, for the most part, there's kind of one team driving it, at least in the beginning. Versus when you're investing in a layer one, typically, or, you know, a good portion of the time, it's a little bit more decentralized and community driven. And so that leads to some different, um, different metrics. The last thing I'll say there is, um, you know, I think when investing in layer ones, especially new layer ones, people are more looking at the underlying instrument itself to generate the value in, in kind of, you know, the price per token appreciating. Versus for some 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 of these DeFi tokens, for example, there is a good portion of, of kind of the upside that people think may come from from cash flow, 
So I, I find that super fascinating as well. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think at the protocol layer, it's definitely a community game, right? It's who, who can generate the largest community. Uh, and, and that extends to community of users, but also community of developers, right? And I think that's why we've seen, you know, an Ethereum succeed a lot more than EOS has, at least to this point, because of, you know, the the, the number of teams that are, you know, either focusing on, on you know, developing Ethereum, like the Ethereum Foundation, or or those that are kind of focusing on developing the applications that are built on top of it, you know, your DeFi protocols, your chain link, you know, your, your NFTs, you know, all the ERC 20s and 721. So um, what, what, you know, kind of talking about applications more specifically, or I guess you can even extend this to protocols, uh, you know, what specific sectors or topics are you most excited about either investing in or at least monitoring? So, you know, an example could be DeFi or NFTs or stable coins or anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple different things that that are, again, more investable and have found more elements of product market fit than others. So if I think about, you know, the, the kind of top use cases that have reached product market fit, and therefore, from my seat as a VC investor at White Star, most investable, you know, I think the first relates to crypto assets as an alternative asset class. And, you know, I think um, there, there are many ways in which you can invest in that and, and monitor that. So, you know, in terms of monitoring, it's looking at things like active addresses, open interest on derivative products, um, you know, market cap, trading volume, stuff like that. And there are ways to monetize that, you know, by looking at exchanges, by looking at brokers, by looking at custodians. So, so that's kind of one trend, obviously. And I think historically, that's probably been the one in which most capital has gone into. But interestingly, today, the capital that's coming into this is kind of trying to pivot this use case or kind of position this use case to a more institutional audience where historically, you know, crypto trading has faced a more retail audience. Uh, the second one you, you touched on it, I think, you know, stable coins is kind of a, a, the future of payments, at least with regards to retail payments, but also potentially like what JP Morgan is doing, corporate payments is absolutely fascinating. You know, they're faster, cheaper um, than, than existing payment systems by, by an order of magnitude. Um, in terms of KPIs to kind of track that, you know, obviously stable uh, volume, trading volumes and kind of market cap are, are important, but it's also important to, to take into account that a lot of those metrics I just mentioned, when you go to things like, you know, Misari stablecoin index, don't really capture some of these central bank digital currencies that are effectively stable coins, some of these corporate driven stable coins. So there's a lot more there than, you know, we see at the tip of the iceberg, but there are a number of ways to monetize that, you know, whether it's investing in, in synthetic stablecoin protocols like Maker whether it's having, you know, direct equity exposure to like Subcircle and Coinbase, which have launched Center. So that's that's certainly one trend. And even things like Multis, you know, are, are very well positioned to kind of grow along the adoption um, of stable coins. The third is probably DeFi. And, you know, I need not spend much time on this podcast talking about the metrics that, that kind of generate interest there. The growth has been completely um, explosive in the, in the best sense of the term over the past couple months. What really excites me about DeFi is I really see it as the next kind of wave of fintech. Um, you know, it enables a lot of similar um, efficiencies that fintech try to try to kind of bring to the consumer, but it does so for for all of the ecosystem participants. Um, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. Beyond that, I think digital collectibles is probably where, where we're spending the most time outside of those earlier categories and infrastructure that underpins all of that, obviously. And I would segment digital collectibles in two today. Um, we're actively interested in, and as I mentioned, kind of gaming use cases that that really work and can bring in crypto uh, users from the kind of blue ocean of people who have never, you know, owned Ether, owned Bitcoin um, today. Can, and so can I you think, give an example of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, what NBA is doing with Dapper Labs is one great example. What So Rare is doing in a similar vein with soccer collectibles is a great example. You know, folks like my my father, my brother, who don't necessarily hold crypto, can play those games. They can purchase, you know, collectibles of of athletes that are officially licensed by the clubs or by the leagues. Um, and these just happen to be digital collectibles, whereas we've been historically used to more paper collectibles. But then, in the case of So Rare, for example, those collectibles can be used in a game, you know, on the weekend that resembles your fantasy soccer league. And so it's kind of merging two existing use cases that have tremendous traction and that appeals because of that licensed content element to a crowd that doesn't necessarily already hold Ether or Bitcoin, which I think is super, super interesting. Um, other games that I think are really interesting are also things like, you know, Gods Unchained, um, kind of iterating on almost what I would call a, a digital version of things like, like Magic the Gathering to overly simplify it. So I think those games are, are very actionable today. And, and one thing I failed to mention earlier is 
we have a large gaming LP um, in our second fund, which is currently looking at, at some of our new funds, including this one. And they actually have a blockchain entrepreneur lab this year, right? So that's given us a kind of lot of comfort um, in that space. Although I don't know that, you know, Call of Duty on the blockchain, we're, we're not quite there yet. But some of these more fantasy sports, collectible card games, stuff like that, like, I do think we are there and I am seeing, you know, some of these games have hundreds, if not thousands of monthly and daily active users, which, which certainly was not the case a year ago. Within digital collectibles, I think there's also, and, and lately that's really taken off, um, a lot of work around kind of digital art that's super interesting. And, and it's been interesting to see, you know, increasingly mainstream museums and thing like, things like that get interested in, in that space as well, notably on the hardware side with, you know, how do we display NFT art and things like that. But an example of a project that I really like in that space is super rare. Um, and I think the team is, is kind of really solid there. So those are probably some of the more, um, some of the more top of mind and actionable things for us right now. And, uh, yeah, look forward to kind of seeing more and more stuff that, uh, that has product market fit in the coming years. You know, I think we've been talking about identity in this space for a long time. Um, actively interested in seeing stuff like that. You know, I think the prime brokerage space has had a lot of capital go in and it's interesting to see some of these projects starting to gain traction I have mixed feelings about some of the supply chain solutions out there, but a number of them are, you know, starting to land a number of big corporate clients. So I think across the board and across different use cases, it's it's really trending in the right direction. So something interesting that you mentioned there, um, you know, I guess a minute or so ago was, uh, you know, digital collectibles, right? And the idea that, you know, you know, you say now it's a hundred or, or thousands of, of people that are interacting with these things. But I'm wondering kind of what you, how you look at the TAM of digital collectibles, right? I mean, you know, I, I'll, I, you know, I look at the baseball card market, for example, and certainly that's a big market. And it's actually been a market that's surged uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, kind of come back from the dead. And so, you know, I'm wondering where you kind of see digital collectibles falling there. And is it just something that's going to be for the younger generation? Do you think it's something that, you know, older people can accept? Like I grew up with baseball cards. I've, you know, collected sports memorabilia my entire life. I, I still don't get the wanting to have something digital. I like physically, you know, owning, uh, you know, a, a jersey, which was worn by an NBA player during a game. You know, for me, having just a digital picture, it doesn't really make sense. So, you know. But I'm wondering where you, you know, because certainly, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not alone, but there are a tremendous amount of people on the other side of this, which I think align with you, which, you know, believe that this is a big market. And, and I, you know, I know a lot of people that are actively buying NFTs. So I'm wondering what you think the TAM is and, and when you think more people will start to come around to the idea of digital collectibles. Yeah. So a couple of things there. I think, you know, in terms of the TAM, I, I don't have kind of a number, even a back of the envelope calculation. Um, right now, but I think you can you can look at a couple other existing markets today and point to, you know, it could feasibly reach that size, if not larger, with the kind of growth we've seen, notably through COVID, like you said. So if you look at, you know, analog collectibles, that is a massive market worth multi-billions of dollars yearly, and digital collectibles could kind of grow into that. If you look at in-game economies and games like Fortnite or even taking a couple years back, Things like Second Life, you know, there, there's a pretty sizable small GDP there. That's basically just the trading of digital collectibles. They just happen to, you know, not be scarce and and kind of provably yours because they're they're built on an entirely different architecture. But you can point to things like that to kind of get to a place where you're comfortable that the TAM, the TAM there is a large TAM there. Yeah, I mean, I still um, I still remember when Fortnite first you know, or not even first came out, but maybe a year or two. And there were people that were early to Fortnite and had these, you know, digital skins and they were selling their accounts with these digital skins for, for obscene amounts of money Yep. because other people could, could no longer access them. Yep, absolutely. And, and before you saw that for Fortnite, you saw that happening for world of Warcraft. And before you right. saw it happening for world of Warcraft, you saw it happening in second life. And so this is not new. It just kind of augments the, the reach, the potential and the attractiveness of, of such, you know, digital economies. So how does that translate into what type of digital collectibles could accrue value, in my opinion, is kind of twofold. I think digital collectibles that can be, you know, plugged and played with within a game um, or some kind of experience where some, there is some gamification certainly kind of bring that to the table. And I think the the Fortnite example you, you put forward is, is a good one, right? If I can buy you know, a golden skin within Fortnite, of which there are only three, um, you know, that I feel like given the traction that there is in the Fortnite community, given the amount of economic activity there is within that community, and given the appeal of that, you know, perhaps super powerful or super defensive or whatever it may have as a tribute skin, there's a plausible argument to say this thing will accrue value. And, you know, the same goes, I think, for, for kind of sports cards, which can be used in fantasy sports. I'm very, very interested in the kind of, um, 
merging of worlds or the confluence of, of trends between you know sports collectibles and sports cards and and fantasy sports. The other area in which I'm kind of interested in at this stage is probably around you know digital art, and I think there's some work to do there around you know where this digital art lives. Is it going to live you know in the metaverse on something like Decentraland or or the Sandbox, or is it going to live on you know one monitor at the new museum? I, I don't know, but from some of the folks I've spoken in the traditional art space, they have clear appetite for this. Um, and I remember reading a, a Fred Wilson blog post a couple of years ago where he's talking about Rare Pepe, and he said, you know, some billionaire might might want to buy this one Rare Pepe from me in a couple of years and have it projected on a screen in his office and be able to tell people you see this graphic, only I own it. So I, I kind of think there's there's some legs there. The last one I'll say is you're seeing some interesting... Um, interesting projects around also, I guess, I don't know if you, you would think about those as digital collectibles, but around kind of social tokens and, and personal tokens. And these can also unlock an array of new experiences that we haven't really seen today, right? You know, say you buy a Thomas token, maybe I do 30 minute consultations, maybe you get free access to my concert if I'm a museum or, or stuff like that. So I think there are a number of avenues in which these digital collectibles can kind of merge a couple of trends that we've seen work today and then open up new business models alongside that. Yeah, and I guess, you know, one of my concerns has always been around, you know, scarcity and how many of these things are issued. But, you know, and the same thing goes with baseball cards today. I mean, you know, you know, back when, you know, I was younger and, and growing up, you know, I was trying to buy a, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a 1950s Mickey Mantle or a 1920s Babe Ruth or all these things. And now we kind of have this, you know, this, this, this market within, within baseball cards, at least, where, you know, these all these card issuers, which are kind of like token issuers, I guess, in a way, are issuing all these one of ones and one of fives and one of tens and all these different things. And to me, that's they're trying to create this artificial scarcity, but at the same time, they're just issuing too much. And I, you know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of get these this that you know, to me, the the baseball card market kind of is starting to look like a bubble with all these things because cards that were five years old, which were valuable then, are completely worthless now. And I wonder if we'll we'll see something similar in the NFT space. And I guess, you know, it it applies both outside of digital collectibles and, you know, also with regular collectibles is it's just, I guess, a trade-off between, you know, you know, how scarce these items actually are and how many, how many you can issue, right? Because mm-hmm. I guess it's the same with art too, right? Where, you know, everybody can create a one-of-one art piece, but maybe only, you know, 10 art pieces are actually going to be valuable. So I, I guess it it's no different within the NFT world as it is in the, you know, in the traditional collectible world either. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you touch on that notion of scarcity, right? I think one, one thing that differs from your baseball card example is, you know, you're buying a baseball card from an issuer and they tell you they're only five, but you know, maybe in six months they print another five and they consider that to be the same series, the same card. And so you've gone from thinking, you know, there were only five to now there are only 10 versus in kind of the blockchain example, um, you can kind of audit the, the supply curve, you know, on chain. Um, and so that, that brings something to the table. The other thing that's interesting, and this applies to art as well, not just kind of the, these you know, baseball cards or, or stuff like that, which is that the fact that you can bake in, you know, smart contract fees that capture um, secondary market fees, whether you're trading on, you know, a project's native native exchange on OpenSea or just you and I, the fact that we can bake in transaction fees in perpetuity into these things probably creates more incentives for, for folks to kind of let more value accrue to less, you know, cards of, of one one type. And I think that's kind of interesting as well. So I think I think hopefully, if anything, this technology will help alleviate some of the points that you mentioned. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's yeah. I mean, you know, just kind of one last thing is, you know, like when, you know, when I was investing in stuff and, you know, I still actively do a bit, you know, I'm looking to buy things from dead people, right? I don't want to buy an alive person autograph because an alive person, like you look at Pete Rose, who's mm-hmm. you know one of the greatest baseball players of all time. You know, he's one of the greatest baseball players of all time, but his autograph's worth about $15 because he signed, you know, you know, every single item in the entire world. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, I think scarcity is a, is a, is a, is a really good, good point. Uh, and so kind of transitioning away from this digital collectible thing uh, and, and back to, you know, uh, White Star more broadly. So you mentioned earlier about, you know, tokens and, and you know, pre-launch and then kind of this one to two year horizon. Is that what the investment horizon is for White Star? Does it depend on the type of investment? And what makes you decide it's time to exit a position? Yeah. So again, I think this ends up splitting between, you know, token investments and um, and equity investments. But generally speaking, this fund is a fairly standard fund in that it's it's a, it's a 10-year life cycle for the fund. But in terms of investment horizon and kind of 
what we think the average exits will look like. We're, we're more looking at a four to seven year um, time horizon. And so the reason I say that is we feel that exits in the space may be a little bit quicker than in traditional tech, just like exits were a little bit quicker, you know, in the early days of the internet. And I think we're starting to see that first, the first signs of that happening with this intra-sector consolidation we've seen over the past couple of years with, you know, Binance, Circle, Coinbase being some of the largest acquirers. And we've seen companies exit through M&A events in the order of, you know, anywhere from a couple million dollars all the way to $400 million. But these companies have been around for, you know, one to three years. So that's kind of part one. Increasingly speaking, some of the bigger names in the space and, you know, the press recently covered um, PayPal's potential ambitions um, in a lot of detail. We're seeing non-crypto companies become potential acquirers in the space as they face, you know, a build partner or buy decision when rolling out their own crypto services. And I think we'll continue to see more of that with firms that have kind of started dipping their toes in crypto and, and now want to, you know, escape into velocity. And so PayPal, you know, Facebook with Libra, Samsung and Apple, which both have, um, you know, crypto um, kind of private key functionality baked into their next generations of phones. Like these, these types of companies for me are the next wave of acquirers. And I think they will continue to drive some of these quicker than 10 year exits. Um, and then finally, we're also starting to see the first signs of IPOs in the space, right? I think BlockFi and Coinbase are rumored to be IPOing soon. So, so that, that's kind of encouraging on the token side. Like I and and so sorry, just to square that off, you know, I think on the on the equity side, like we expect exits in kind of the four to seven uh, seven time frame uh, seven year sorry time frame horizon, um, and that investment decision and kind of exit decision comes down to, at the board level as it would in a in a traditional way. On the token side, it's a little bit different in that these instruments become liquid, you know, earlier than uh, than we're traditionally used to in venture. And so we at Winestar still take a long-term approach to our investment. That means at the very, very least, you know, a year or two in our outlook. And oftentimes when you're going directly to kind of, you know, a pre, pre-network launch sale or you're talking to the team, vesting periods on these tokens does reflect that. And, and we're very comfortable with that. And that's the stance um, and kind of lens through which we look at these investments. The... Exit decision, however, is a little bit different in that there is no kind of you know board that decides to sell the company or something like that. It's up to us at the investment committee level to you know depending on what investment thesis we had and what kind of you know valuation targets we had and, and what kind of time horizon we had in mind to take that to the investment committee like we would another investment decision before we kind of approved it at the board level um, and agree on that together. And and I think a number of funds that made some of these illiquid token investments back in 2017. Are starting to have to think about how you know how they can formalize and institutionalize that. For us, it really does come down to investment committee approval, the same way we would make an investment or okay whatever our future vote at the board level on an equity investment would be. And so, cri- cryptos and, and protocols are so unbelievably volatile, right? And and you could have an event that you know, for example, let's say you invest in X token and on, you know, one year in, it gets listed on Coinbase and Binance and it shoots up 250%. You know, how do you, how do you think about that in terms of your investments, right? Where, you know, there are just times in crypto where things just increase exponentially, um, you know, for, you know, for, I don't want to say dumb reasons, but, but just very quickly will accrue a tremendous amount of value. How do you think about, making short-term trades is that something that you've thought about um and and if yes you know what do you think would drive that decision making and and if not you know why are you shying away from that yeah so i think as a rough rule of thumb we're not really looking to make short-term trade trades whether on the buy or on the sell reason for that being it's just a very different job to what we kind of do every day right as venture investors we're looking five to ten years out so it's hard to, you know, reconcile that lens through which we look at the world with one that is, you know, hey, this token's gone 100x today. Um, we should probably sell and rebuy once it dips. Um, that said, to your point, some of the fluctuations we see in crypto are so large that, you know, keeping an active eye on our crypto portfolio when we have one is, is going to be kind of central. And then being able to very quickly take something to the board if we feel it should be an exit or think about hedging a position if, if we need to are kind of strategies that we're thinking about. So I would say, you know, we're not we're not going to be short-term traders, we're not a hedge fund, but we do have to be a little bit more nimble and and more at least short-term plugged in um than than just a traditional VC fund. And so we're actively working on a couple of strategies and kind of um tracking tracking tools to to be able to navigate that properly. And maybe adding one thing to that quickly um you know is is 
On the token side, what's interesting is there could be scenarios in which a fund, whether it's ourselves or someone else, you know, only divests a portion of their holding, not the whole thing, versus that is less typical, although there are sometimes secondaries um, on the kind of equity side of venture. And, uh, and, and so when you're thinking about divesting, um, you know, part of your holdings, are, are you thinking about holding them, you know, you know, then funneling that money just into cash? Have you guys thought about holding Bitcoin? Because I know what a lot of crypto native funds have done. Uh, like I know you mentioned Chris Bernisky earlier, well, placeholder, you know, kind of, you know, changed what their, their, their capabilities were, where, where they were, you know, originally not able to really allocate to Bitcoin. But during the bear market of 2018 and 2019, they've actually, they did very, very well because they moved out of some positions and were holding Bitcoin. Um, and so is that something that you guys have thought about doing? Or is it more just like, hey, maybe it makes sense to move into cash for some, you know, temporary period of time? Yeah, so I think our stance lies somewhere in between. Um, we're not going to be charging LPs, you know, venture fees to, to go buy Bitcoin. Um, we're happy to assist them in, in their purchase and give them our view. No, where of, we think of course the not. Going. And that's that. Of that's also not. a function of our fund size, right? If you compare us to, you know, Paradigm and Andreessen Horowitz and guys like that, they're, they have multi hundred $100 million funds and more. Um, and so for them, allocating to 15 to 20 projects in a concentrated fashion like we're doing is, is tough in this space, given that, there's not that much deal flow and the bulk of the deal flow is still kind of pre-series A. And so for them to kind of have some large active positions in secondary market trading makes a lot of sense for our fund size a little bit less so. We won't be buying, you know, Bitcoin in the secondary market with this fund. We will, however, potentially be opportunistic, you know, if we've been speaking to a team and tokens in the, in the secondary market are, are very attractive um, and the team's not willing to sell some of the treasury, that could be a good way to do things. Maybe there's a project in which we already have a stake and it's taken a bit of a hit in the market and we kind of double down because we have conviction and and we can kind of smooth out our entry price to a lower price point. So those are all things to consider. What I would say on your point of exiting to cash or not is is a couple of different things. I think you know with this token sleeve, we're kind of actively thinking through a couple of different strategies. So for one, you know, to the extent that possible, if we make a token investment, although it's more of a buy and hold strategy, we do want to put that money to work. Whether that's in a DeFi or CFI lending and borrowing um, application is is one avenue. If these are networks where you can stake, that's another. And then, you know, exiting to something like a USDC is also something that's on the table and, and putting that cash to work. So I think the answer lies kind of somewhere in between. We probably wouldn't divest from, you know, a token investment to go straight into Bitcoin, but going into something like USDC and parking that cash somewhere where it can generate some yield is absolutely a possibility. And so what worries you most about crypto and what has you most excited? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, that's that's a loaded question, I would say. But what excites me the most, I think, is is really kind of the level of mainstream awareness that crypto is is starting to um, to garner. And I think you know you've been in the space for a while. I have too. And we've been talking about you know the institutions are coming, normal folks are coming for a while. But but really, it was more of an aspiration than a reality. You know, in the past couple of months, we've seen industry giants across a bunch of different um, industries. Get involved, whether it's you know Estee Lauder and Walmart with supply chain tracking, JP Morgan with JPM Coin, um, you know Fidelity with Fidelity Digital Assets, ICE with Backed, you, you kind of name it. There's a number of production grade projects that corporates and institutions have launched. And at the same time, back to the point I was making earlier, we're starting to see non you know crypto as an alternative asset class applications gain some traction and some mainstream users. Whether that's you know Brave, that's somewhat crypto enabled, having you know, pretty impressive monthly active user numbers or things like NBA Top Shot um, and, and so rare having, you know, a couple of thousand monthly active users, although they're in their very early days. So crossing the chasm into mainstream definitely is the thing that has me most interested. On the flip side, what, where it has me worried is I think crypto kind of lives and dies in terms of the ebbs and flows and kind of peaks and troughs of the market with narratives. And and crypto and crypto Twitter are kind of very jargony. And, and some of that is alienating to those mainstream users and even to regulators and some corporates. And so how we as kind of people who have been in crypto for a while welcome these folks is something that I think we need to be very, very ca cautious about. Because the last thing we want is more misinformed, you know, negative headlines that, that, that completely miss the point. And that's something that's held back the space to date. So I realize that's a little bit surface, but it really is kind of the, the thing that both excites me and scares me the most at the same time. No, I, I think you're. I think you're totally right. I mean, I, I spoke to a, f a family office yesterday who have had zero conversations around crypto. I, I was their first one, oh, wow. and they were super excited. But they started, you know, they started asking me about, you know, about all these different, you know, 
other digital assets and things like that. I'm like, we should just take a step back and let's start with Bitcoin before we start going down this rabbit hole. And let's be slow about this. Let's be cautious because I don't want them, you know, getting distracted by some, you know, shitty scammy project that a lot of people invested in in 2017, right? You want to make sure that, you know, somebody's cautious and taking their time. And also it's very, very easy to get overwhelmed, right? You know, I don't want to start on day one with a DeFi conversation because then it's, you know, oh, well, what is yield farming and what is this and what is that? And, you know, why am I, what is a pancake swap? Pancake swap today got listed on BitHub. Like, I have no idea what pancake swap <laughs> is. Like, what is, why is pancake swap different than sushi swap, different than Uniswap, different than, you know, all this other stuff, right? And, you know, I think it, I think it's a matter of, you know, being welcoming, right? And, and, and having a community that's welcoming and having educational resources and, you know, being able to 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 hold hands and assist with onboarding and and you know, I think I think you know, to, you you made the point very well. Is you know, one of the biggest challenges we have in this industry is just how kind of closed off we make ourselves to others, and we really need to stop. <laughs> yeah, no, that's an absolutely great point, and I think you know, a number of solutions like Argent, like Multis, like SoRare have abstracted away the crypto to to a great degree. I think we all as a community need to be a better job of uh, abstracting the crypto in in the way we talk, right? And so, for example, talking about security tokens, like I like to refer to them as digital securities. I think it's a lot less alienating. Um, So I think we as a community have still have some work to do on that front, Um, but it is all trending in the right direction. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time, Thomas. Can you just let people know where they can uh, find out more about you and White Star? And I'll, I'll put all the links in the description as well. But Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, you can learn more about White Star at whitestarcapital.com, um, both about kind of our general funds as well as our digital asset fund. And if you'd like to get in touch about anything um, crypto, fintech, or gaming related, which I also spend a little bit of time on on our main fund, um, feel free to shoot me a note at thomas at whitestarcapital.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Josh. It was great to be on.